Well, guys, today we wrap up our first summer series, which has been our look at Jesus' heart for and his ministry to the outcasts of his day. I hope you have found it as provocatively challenging as I have. Today, as we wrap up, I want to come full circle and go all the way back to where we started. And that is with the tendency for the people of God to misunderstand the heart of God. Specifically, now you might remember we started with the story of the mutterers a few weeks ago. Luke records, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They muttered. They began to talk amongst themselves, to, to gossip about Jesus and about the crowd that he was hanging around with. And, and actually, we actually don't have to guess what they were muttering about because apparently Luke's investigation into these matters revealed it because he wrote that they muttered, this man, speaking of Jesus, welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, if you were here when we kicked off the series, you might remember that Jesus overhears the muttering, which in its own right is something good for us to remember. Remember, church, Jesus hears your muttering. And so then, without any prep or context or introduction, Jesus goes into three straight stories. The parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus leaves the 99 and he goes searching for the one. The parable of the lost coin, where a woman loses one of ten coins and turns her house upside down looking for it. And then the parable of the prodigal son, where a father loses one of his two sons and he looks for him every day, hoping, waiting for his return. And when he comes home, the father throws the party of all parties, which, by the way, is just what the shepherd did when he found his sheep and what the woman did when she found her coin. Why? Because what we learned from all three stories was what was lost really, really mattered. And it was worth an all-out search. And when it was found, well, it was worthy of raucous celebration. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I think it explains the heart of God and the ministry and purpose of Jesus more than any other chapter. I've got only one problem with it. While I love it and I, and I understand it mentally, I find that there's another force at work within me that seems bent on resisting it. It's, it's like there's something inside of me that, that repels me away from people not like me, who don't think like me or act like me or vote like me. You name it. And that force tends to pull me away from them and, and towards people who either will like me or who are like me. I like to mutter about those who aren't like me, and I like to cluster with those who are. Now, do you feel that at work in you? You might not, but I have to tell you that really, really smart people are giving the best hour of their days, and they're making lots and lots of money, profiting off this force, which is common to all of us, a divided people. It turns out it's really good for ratings and, and for sales and bottom lines. It's just really bad for the message of Jesus. And, and what's even more troubling is, is that this pull, in a sense, of God's people towards isolation and separation and outcasting, it more often than not finds a place of prevalence in the hearts of people who want to follow God because we don't understand his heart for the outcast. You know, Luke 15, right? The muttering. The muttering is not an isolated incident. Luke records it earlier in Jesus' ministry in chapter 7. 
he records that Jesus was eating at the home of a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, right, they were the religiously right, the morally superior members of the religious ruling class in Jerusalem. They were the in crowd. When, quote, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Well, when the Pharisee, whose house it is, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, this just goes to show you, Jesus hears your muttering, even if you do it out loud or to yourself. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. She's not welcome in this house at my table. And in his mind, Jesus should not be welcoming her either. Get this woman out of my house. It happens after Jesus' teaching in Luke 15 and chapter 19. Many of you know the story. There was a man named Zacchaeus, right? A wee little man goes the song. Luke describes him as a chief tax collector. So apparently now there are levels of outcasts. Remember, we have sinners, and then we have tax collectors, and then we have this chief uh, tax collector, the chief of outcasts. Well, he climbs a tree because he was a wee little man, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. And, and Jesus spotted him up in the sycamore tree and looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to, well, you know what they began to do, mutter. And of course, what did they begin to mutter? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, I could do this all day. That's how big our propensity is towards exclusion and separation. Don't believe me? Go check out Matthew chapter 11 or or Luke chapter 7. But I want to show you another one. Um, where Jesus takes on most directly our tendency to do this. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 9. And, and Matthew records that as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. What is it with Jesus and tax collectors? Actually, that's a serious question, really. What is it with Jesus and these tax collectors? And, and so again, enter the story now. Jesus is walking with some of the disciples he's already kind of called to himself, Peter, Andrew, James, John. And he goes up to Matthew, the tax collector. And everybody's got to be thinking, oh man, he is going to put this guy in his place for being such a, for being such a Benedict Arnold. Well, okay, Benedict Arnold wasn't born yet. He's going to call him a Judas. Well, Judas hasn't betrayed him yet. Well, I don't know. There had to be some kind of insult for people who turned their backs on their own people and extorted them in the name of the Roman oppressors and the occupiers of the day. And he oppressed, Matthew was oppressing his own people for his own gain. And so now they all watch as Jesus walks up to him and they're going, man, I wonder what Jesus, how is he going to let him have it? What's he going to call him? What does Jesus say? Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And I got to imagine Peter, James, and John, right? Wait, what? Again, this is why you should read the Bible. It's often not what you expect. These guys have to be like, well, wait a minute, whoa, 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 Jesus. 
This guy? See, I, I can picture John coming up to him, Jesus, you know, we've been following you around for like a bit now, and you know, with, with all the miracles and, and things, people are, people are really starting to kind of dig us. Like, we used to be fishermen nobodies. Nobody cared about us, but now, I mean, everybody wants to be with us. Everybody wants to be seen by us and with us. Snapchat, Snapchat just put out a disciples filter. Jesus, don't invite this guy in. This guy, if he gets in, then it makes what we've achieved not look like such a big deal anymore. And plus, what are people going to think of us if we're with him? And then it gets worse because Jesus tells Matthew to follow him. But then do you know where Jesus goes? While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Crazy, right? Jesus tells him to follow him. And where does he follow him to? Back to his house. He does it again. And then, I love this, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Can you just picture the look on Peter, James, and John's faces now, sitting in the house surrounded by tax collectors and sinners? Now, you, you've heard enough of these stories. You know what's coming next, right? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? A couple things. First, this time they didn't mutter. This time they, they got up the guts to ask. And so this time they'll get an answer. But it's funny. They asked the disciples, but it's Jesus who answers. My guess is that at this point the disciples weren't really sure yet either. Well, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Maybe you've heard that line before. And the irony, of course, in Jesus' words here are that all of us, the disciples and the Pharisees alike, we're all sick with our brokenness of sin. But then Jesus tells them to, to go do something, to examine an idea. And I think this is a, a message and an idea that needs examining by all of us. Jesus looks at him and goes, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus looks at them. And in light of this party he's having with the outcasts, he says, listen, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's actually quoting something f from their past that they, they would have known. It was from Israel's prophet Hosea, where God accuses the people that their love is, is like the dew on the grass in the morning. It's there for a brief hour, and then it's gone, and all that's left is just meaningless sacrifice. Jesus says, look, go and learn what this means. We have something to learn about this. And, and so I set out this week to educate myself on it, to learn what this is in me, this force that, that pulls me, pushes me uh, to exclude and isolate and separate. Why do I do that? And, and what is this conflict that exists between mercy and sacrifice? What are the Pharisees doing? What, what am I doing sometimes to elevate sacrifice and what is Jesus doing that seems to, to, to be described as mercy? Well, in my search, I came across some research deta detailed by Dr. Richard Beck in his book, Unclean. Dr. Beck is a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. He is both a Christian and an exper or experimental social scientist. A and he read Matthew 19, and, and he set out to learn too. Why do the Pharisees do that? Why do we do that? What did Jesus do that was different? And how does this relate to mercy and sacrifice? 
His point was that the teaching that we know is true. How many of you have heard, for example, um, over and over again, right? We should hate the sin but love the sinner. He said that we know that there's truth there, but for all of us, experientially, it's very hard for us to do with our hearts. We know it's true, but our hearts have a hard time acting it out. Well, psychologically, Dr. Beck says what is happening to me and to the Pharisees and, and maybe to some of you is something rooted in what um, is called purity psychology. Uh, this force that's at work within me is actually truly a psychological force. It's called the psychology of disgust. And he says, if you get this, you will start to understand what's going on with the Pharisees versus what's going on with Jesus. I actually got to see him teach this to the leaders at North Point Church in Atlanta, and it was ridiculously fun and so revealing. And so I want to borrow it from him and share it with you. Now, he uses various demonstrations to show this natural psychological force that's at work in us. The first test that he used is called the Dixie Cup test. So hopefully you got your Dixie cup out at home and you're ready. If you did, I, I'd encourage you to pull it out right now. I have mine right here. Now, before we get to the Dixie cup test, what I want everybody to do is just focus for a moment on the saliva in your mouth. Just take a second, kind of gather it up, if you will, kind of on your tongue for a second. Get ready. And then I, I, I want you to swallow it. Not a big deal, right? Each of us does this hundreds of times every day. Now, here's what I want you to do with your Dixie cup. I want you to gather up for a minute the saliva in your mouth again, and then I want you to spit it into that cup. Go ahead at home. Nobody wants to see me do this, but you're at home. I'll, I'll wait for you. Okay, you ready? Now, here's what I want you to do. You've got a cup full of your own saliva. Just kind of swish it around a little bit for a second, and then I just want you to redrink it. Go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. See, it, not so easy, right? In fact, it's kind of disgusting. I actually didn't do this with you because I didn't want to gross you out. I mean, realistically, right? Let's think this through. Is there any physical difference? It's the same stuff you just swallowed a second ago without thinking about it. The only difference is now it's outside of my body. It went from being fine when it was inside to being revolting on the outside. And it's not just you, right? If you're sitting next to your wife and, and you're sitting on a couch maybe this morning and you did this in front of her, she's probably over there dry heaving. What Dr. Beck points out is that this little experiment highlights a feature of disgust. It's something called boundary psychology. Disgust regulates a boundary between the body and the outside world. It helps us to survive when it's working at its best. Once things cross the boundary to the outside, they are no longer to be incorporated on the inside. Now, what I want you to understand is that this concept of purity psychology, it's always monitoring boundaries. And of course, here's what we know. If, if we ingest accidentally something disgusting, right, what's our natural response? right? To get it out, to expel it. See, purity psychology, which we all have at work in us, for our body's protection, it informs us that if we take in something disgusting, purity for our body would be achieved by expelling it. The way we purify ourselves is to expel the contaminant 
in our midst? Do you see any similarities at play here? Because his point is that, like the Pharisees, when we start to regulate our moral, spiritual, and church lives through the idiom of purity, when we begin to see people and what they do as pure or impure, the only way that we can maintain our purity is to expel impure people from our midst. Now, his experiment gets a little bit grosser, but stick with me. This is the study of disgust. Disgust also involves an an appraisal of contamination. That's part of it. Now, one of the ways that we judge if something is disgusting is if it's contaminated, if it's contacted something or is in close proximity to something. Bear with me while I get my glove on here. This will probably take longer than it should, and I don't even need to get it on perfectly for our example. Now, if there's something close to food, for example, and it's gross, then we judge the food as being what? Unclean. This is at work in every one of these Jesus stories. It's Jesus' proximity to the sinners. He's, He's too close to them. He's in their homes. He's eating with them. He can't do that because that will make him unclean, right? Here's the thing with contamination. The Pharisees believed, and, and so do you and I, in, in what's something called um, negative dominance. When it comes to contamination, that's what we think. I'm going to show you what this means. It's kind of gross, but I think you'll get it. We had the youth group at our house the other night. We have several dogs that live in our house. And so I told my kids, hey, before all the other kids get here, I'm going to need you to do a poop walk, clean up the yard. The kids were going to be out there. And so the kids did, and I knew I was going to be doing this experiment, and so I asked them to keep just a tiny bit of this. A little bit gross, but just go through this with me, right? I got two things I want to show you here. I have this nice red apple, and I have this dog stuff. This is disgusting. This is delicious. Yet if I were to take this dog poop and just kind of touch it to the apple. And then I would ask you, now who wants to eat this? No one, right? And why? Because it well, touched the poop. It's inedible. Now, let, let me ask you this. What, what, what about this? Would anybody eat this now because it touched the apple? Of course not, right? Now, before anybody gets all grossed out, This is just a Tootsie Roll. Calm the gagging reflex. But do you see the point? When something pure and something contaminated come into contact with one another, we've been trained to believe that the power only flows one way, right? It always flows from the contaminated to the pure. The negative dominates. It goes from the pollutant to the pure. It never goes from the pure to the pollutant. It never goes the other way. We believe, right, that the power sits with the contaminant. So when there is contact or proximity, it doesn't render the impure pure. It ruins the pure. This is exactly the mindset of the Pharisees in every one of the stories I read you. Why does it not occur to them that Jesus' proximity to the sinners might make them clean? It might render them pure. But that never crossed their minds. Yet that is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus is always reversing this idea. Contact with Jesus always reverses the polarity. 
Remember the unclean woman touching his robe? She's healed. Jesus is not rendered unclean. This is still what Jesus is doing for impure people, sinners like you and me. And here's the point of all this. This psychology of disgust that is natural and at work in each of us, these forces of impure versus pure and negative dominance, they are at work in us. This is the natural way we think. For us as believers, right, theologically, here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus has all of the power in the world. All power resides in Christ. But experientially, we live sometimes as if the power resides in the world. And so what has the church had a tendency to do over the years? To isolate, to, to pull back, and to expel out. We gather with those of like mind and lifestyles, and we cast out. And again, it's just so powerful. He actually gave one more psychological demonstration at North Point. He opened up, it's pretty funny, he opened up a brand new out-of-the-box bedpan. And he poured right out of um, a brand new, he cracked it open in front of everyone, a bottle of lemonade, he poured it into the bedpan. And he asked if anybody would be willing to drink the lemonade out of the bedpan. And of course, nobody wanted to. And he said, why? And the response was, I know it's clean, but I just can't. You see, this force, this feeling, this psychology of purity and disgust, listen now, it overrides even our intellect and what we know is true. This is why it's so dangerous. We know in our minds, but with our hearts, there's another force at work and we're still so far. You see, these properties of attaching disgust attributes to human beings it's actually a natural way we all reason about what psychologists call outgroup members. An outgroup member are people who are different from us. There's, there's a term for it. It's actually called infrahumanization. It's the tacitly held belief that somebody's in-group is just slightly higher on the scale of humanity than the out-group. Now, none of us think that way out loud, but I'll give you an example that might kind of ring true for you. Think about your political beliefs and how you voted in the last election. And now I want you to think about everybody who voted differently from you. Put those people in your mind. Don't you think there's something wrong with them? Like, like really, in your gut. Like something's, something's not quite right with, with those folks. Either they're not very smart, right? or maybe they're not very informed, or maybe they're not very moral. Now, I know you think this way. I go on Facebook. We all do it. See, it's at work in all of us. It's the way we reason about groups. Now, you name the group, Republican or Democrat, jock, jocks or musicians, the thin or the heavy. It's, it's always at work. We're always grouping people into these different kinds, smart or dumb, cool or nerdy, successful or failures, liberals or conservatives, moral or immoral. We hold people of our own kind at one level and others at a slightly lower one. In fact, it's interesting. The root word for kind is the same root word for kindness. You see, we extend very naturally kindness, grace and forgiveness, the benefit of the doubt, to, to people of our kind. The others get treated as we perceive they deserve. 
he actually gives a great example. Beck calls it our moral circle, the people who we are like, who like us, who we are related to by blood or by in-group classification, our kin, our kind, the ones we extend kindness to. They're in our moral circle. And he gives an example of that was so familiar to me. He said, imagine you and your friends are going out to dinner and, and the place is packed, but all of you are there that special night to celebrate your friend Jim because it's Jim's first night as a waiter. He's been bussing tables for like a year and the manager finally told him he'd give him a, a shot at waiting tables. You know, more tips, more money. It was a major promotion. And of course, you're all there to celebrate. There's only one problem. I mean, you see Jim, man, he's running himself ragged. It's his first night. He barely knows what he's doing and every table is packed. And so it takes some time for Jim to even get over to you. And what he does, I mean, he, he, he's frazzled and he apologizes for the wait. And I mean, of course, what, is, what do every one of you at the table say to him? Oh, Jim, no problem. Jim, take care of the other tables. When you get a second, circle back to us. We'll wait, no rush. Well, some time goes by. 20 minutes later, 20 minutes later, Jim brings over your drink order, right? And it's all wrong. The coffee's cold. The beer is warm. But when Jim asks if you're ready to order, you tell him, oh, Jimbo, that drink really hit the spot. Hey, you all order. 45 minutes later, your food gets delivered. You ordered a burger, but you got tilapia. And yet you think to yourself, you know what? This is healthier. I'll just eat this. And then when the bill comes, you all chip in and leave Jim like a 30% tip. Now, if the Sermon on the Mount is to be believed, which it should be, Jesus says, you know, even the pagans do this. The pagans extend kindness to their kind. Now, same experience, same packed restaurant, different overstressed waiter. You order Diet Coke, but this kind of tastes like Diet Pepsi. You hate Diet Pepsi. This has got to go back. You try to get the waitress's attention, but she's so busy, she keeps walking by. You ordered a steak, it was supposed to be medium, but this steak is cooked well, and you'd send it back, but it, why bother at this point? She's just going to mess it up anyway. And so now you're waiting for your check, and it's taking like forever. And in your mind, the tip calculator is just going down, down, down. And at this point, she doesn't, every time she walks by, you can't even bring yourself to make eye contact with her anymore. You just want out. You see, guys, two people, same service, but we extend to them two very different kinds of kindness because one is in our circle, one is our kind, and the other is not. Yet the one who is not is in someone's circle. The one, the one who's not in ours is somebody's friend. It, it is somebody's daughter or somebody's mother. Somebody does care about her. I can't help but think it is for this reason that Jesus uses language like, brother and sister and mother when he speaks of how we relate to others. Just longing for us to extend the moral circle beyond those of just our kind. This is in us. We sort people into kinds, strangers and friends, but Jesus is calling us to see them all as children of God. They all possess the imago Dei as friend or brother or sister. We tend to extend that kind of kindness to others, but only when they change and become like us first. When they vote like us or think like us or live like us, then they can come in our circle and we'll extend kindness. This is what we do. But Jesus is very, very different. 
He actually gives an incredible example of this in Matthew, actually right before the dinner party with the, with the sinners and tax collectors. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now remember, Jesus told the Pharisees to go and learn what it means that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And in this case, the sacrificial thing, the, the religious rules, right, were clear. Purity laws called for this man to be avoided. In fact, in order to be in compliance with those laws, as this man drew near to Jesus, he was supposed to be yelling out to everybody, unclean, unclean, so that they would all move away from him. And yet Jesus, fully understanding the Levitical law, the law he came not to abolish but to fulfill, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus reached out his hand to someone who was still unclean who had not yet changed, who was still contaminated. Jesus does so not fearing that the contamination is going to transfer to him, but that he had the power to overcome the man's impurity. Jesus reached out to him and touched him, and then he said, I am willing. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Church, you see, way too often in our lives, we get the order backwards. Jesus did not say be clean and then touch him. That would have changed the whole story. In his impurity, Jesus reached out to him. Jesus' purity flowed towards his impurity. Do you see that? And so I have to ask you, who are your outcasts? Who are you waiting for to do the right thing before you reach out to them? Who are you waiting for to apologize before you go to their house again or before they're ever invited over? Who are you willing, who are you waiting for to see things the right way politically or morally before you befriend them? There's a meme going around on Facebook a lot the last couple of weeks. You've probably seen it. I've had friends on both sides of the political aisle post it. It says, quote, if I was asked if I'm willing to lose friends over politics, and I said I'm willing to lose friends over morals, huge difference. That's what the meme says. But it's funny, Jesus wasn't willing to lose friends over either. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Have you learned what this means? It's not easy. There are forces everywhere trying to get you to not understand. Some of those forces, as I've shown you, are even at work within us. The psychology of disgust, this force within us, it, it's a learned response. You ever notice that kids will put anything in their mouths? They'll eat dirt, bugs, sand. Their response is conditioned. That's why in some cultures we eat cows and in other cultures they eat dogs. This impulse which exists for our good, to help keep our bodies pure and healthy, like most things in our fallen nature, it's been corrupted by sin, and it's now broken, and it gets attached to people. Who have you attached it to? Because I'm telling you, I know it feels right. It feels normal. It might even feel good. For some, they mistake and think it's godly, but it's not. It might be sacrifice but it is not mercy. Now, our faith, our faith informs us that we are saved, right, by, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, that Jesus' death was an atonement 
for us. It paid the price for the debt of sin that we owed. We believe that Jesus' righteousness flows to us and makes us clean and pure. Jesus came to make us clean. Yet, we also know that according to Paul on several occasions, we've all got to stand before God and give an account for, for our lives, for how we led them, what we did with them, all the good and the bad. In fact, here's one of the times Jesus, uh, Paul wrote to the Romans. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Here's an idea. You want to know if you, you are getting the priority of sacrifice and mercy wrong? Uh, let me ask you, when you imagine yourself giving that account to God, do you picture him being more interested in your sacrifices? If you were to list off to God all of your, all of your stuff, would you say, well, you know, there was these mission trips, and, and I went to church every week, and, and I gave 10%, and, and, you know, there was that building project. Are those the things that you plan on, on wowing God with? More than the mercy that you've shown to those who needed it. Can you not, based on Jesus' teaching, almost hear God saying, yeah, 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 those things are great, but, but more importantly, to whom did you show mercy when it was not deserved? Whom did you include that you wanted to exclude? Who you knew was lost? Did you go looking for them? What son of mine did you forgive who offended you? Because you see, if, if you just picture God being interested in your acts of sacrifices, then, then you have to go and learn to do mercy, to go to the home of the outcast. It might be time to throw an outcast party. I'm going to close the series with Richard Beck's personal practical application based on his science. He, uh, he introduced um, St. Therese of Les Sioux. Apparently, she came from a very religious family, and she went into the convent as a nun around age 15 and died just a few years later. Never left the monastery. Yet, just a few years after her death, the church recognized her as a saint up there with Aquinas and Augustine. Think about this. She, she died as a young girl. She never hit the missionary field. I mean, how do you get to be a saint after only a few years of service? I think she was dead by the age of 24. Well, the secret is in a book she wrote called The Story of the Soul, and in it she talked about something she called the little way. This is how we learn what Jesus meant about mercy versus sacrifice. People who have practiced the little way down the years have included Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and Mother Teresa, who named herself after St. Therese of Lisieux. It was Mother Teresa who attempted to sum up the little way very famously. She said, we cannot do great things, but we can do little things with great love. She writes, Teresa, I have noticed, this is very natural, she said in her writing, I have noticed, and this is very natural, that the most saintly sisters in the convent are the most loved. We seek their company. We render them services without their asking. Finally, these souls, so capable of bearing with the lack of respect and consideration of others, see themselves surrounded with everyone's affection. But, she said, on the other hand, imperfect souls are not sought out. No doubt we remain within the limits of religious politeness in their regard, but we generally avoid them, fearing lest we say something which isn't too um, amiable. When I speak of imperfect souls, she says, I don't want to speak of spiritual imperfection since the most holy souls will be perfect only in heaven, but, but I want to speak of a, you know, people with a lack of judgment, good manners, lacking good manners, touchiness in certain characters, all of these things which don't make life very agreeable. 
And so this is what she said. She said, this is the conclusion I draw from this. I, I, I must seek out in recreation on free days the company of sisters who are the least agreeable to me in order to carry out with regard to these wounded souls the office of the Good Samaritan. A word, an amiable smile, often suffice to make a sad soul bloom. Her inspiration for this conclusion, Jesus, who she said taught her what he longs to teach every disciple, that when you give a luncheon or dinner, you do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the liberals, the conservatives, the Republicans, the Democrats, the cool kids, the nerds, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Menham Hills Community Church, this is what it means when Jesus, God incarnate, who showed up, and he, he shows us dinner party after dinner party after dinner party. This is what he meant when he said we need to go and learn what it means that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Oh, that we would get this. Friends, my prayer is that this series has opened our eyes. We have modern-day outcasts everywhere. They are in our homes, our schools, our neighborhoods, our offices, and right here in our church. And so may we, like St. Therese of Lesue, draw her same conclusion and seek out and search for and look for the company of those least agreeable to us. Church, let's teach this to our children. Let's not just tell them about it. Let's show them, model it. Lives hang in the balance, you know. And may it be, may it be said of the people of this church that we did this very little thing with great love. Seek, search, find, and celebrate, my friends, for this is what it means to love mercy and not sacrifice.